0: Hi, everybody. I'm Brooke Warner, and I want to remind listeners who might also be working on their memoirs that I am teaching a four-week craft class with Linda Joy Myers during the month of November. So if you're looking for a perfect side dish to your effort at NaNoWriMo, or in our case, NaNoMemo, join us for Mastering Craft, Finding and Making Meaning. Uh, This will be four weeks on Tuesdays. The class is just $125, and we will be covering why in your memoir you must show and tell, also advanced narration, something every memoirist needs, reflection and takeaway, which is my favorite, and then finally, meaning-making, the heart of it all. We'd love to have you with us in November, and details can be found at magicofmemoir.com. And if you're not a memoirist, I will be writing alongside you in November anyway. And even if you can't write every day, write what you can Looking forward to hearing updates from our listeners. Please send them along, social media, email, however you want to let Grant and I know what you're doing, and good luck.
1: Welcome crafter, aestheticians, esthetes, shapers, and shifters. I'm Grant Faulkner, and I'm here with my very craft-minded co-host, Brooke Warner. And we're talking craft again today as part of our craft-minded series. We're we're talking about how craft can change and evolve as you get older, as you learn more as a writer and learn more about yourself and know more about who you want to be on the page. And that's one part of the story with today's guest, Lan Samantha Chang who internalized the craft lessons she was taught as a young writer, but then realized they didn't serve the world she'd experienced and they didn't serve the world she wanted to represent on the page, the world shown in her most recent novel, The Family Chow. And Brooke, I really related to Lan Samantha Chang's evolving craft sensibility because I've reckoned with the same craft lessons she did, which is no surprise because we got our writing degrees at the same time. And it's comforting to me now to find myself more at home in my aesthetic, yet I'm also intrigued how we generally find that home through a journey where we're playing different roles in short, you know, roles that might not be us but roles we have to travel through and I've often envied those people who seem to know their voice and their aesthetic from the start instead of wandering through a desert to find it as (laughs) I did and so I'm kind of curious have you gone on an aesthetic journey or had any noticeable schisms or departures?
0: Gosh, uh, you know, my journey is so different because I've never tried to write fiction or even been drawn to try to write fiction. And I think that question of aesthetic and style can sometimes be more pronounced there, uh, since nonfiction is so centered on finding your own authentic voice. So I don't know, I'll speak to the nonfiction briefly, though, since It's my experience, and I've spoken about it on the podcast before. But I was a junior in high school when I wrote this very personal, meaningful essay for my AP Lit class, and my teacher just eviscerated it. You know, he marked it up so extensively, and I got a C minus, which was really devastating. And I didn't hold on to that paper, but um, you know, that was an early attempt at memoir writing, and I believe. Thinking about it, that that was my voice on the page, and that he didn't like it because it was probably informal and sounded like me. And it took me a long time to realize that there was value in sounding like me. Mm. <laughs> and um, that's what I've learned to do as I've cultivated my own style is just to embrace that meanness. And I do have a point of view, and I have a voice, and I have a way of articulating things that's all my own. Um, and a lot, for a long time, I was just scared, you know, scared to to do that out loud. And so I don't know how much this translates to fiction, Grant, um, and I'd love for you to tell me, but I do think there's a parallel f- for our listeners, you know, just to be yourself on the page. And our guest today, Lan Samantha Chang, who goes by Samantha, you know, she's talked about how her friends would remark that she's very funny in real life, but that that didn't show up on the page. And so I'm thinking maybe this is along the lines of what I'm talking about, you know, which is how to Embrace your unique you-ness on the page.
1: Yeah, I think that's always the challenge in the journey. And I'm so sorry to hear that story. I want to find this this horrible English teacher, <laughs> track him or her down and, and lecture them. I think it, it's it's sad too because I I also always say that every writer somehow has to have a creative wound like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it happens to almost everybody. Um, but yeah, since you mentioned Samantha's, you know, how her friends didn't say you were funny. Yeah, you're so funny in life, but we don't see any of that on the page. I, w- I was intrigued by that as well, because I've heard the same thing from my friends. What I write is different than the person they know. And I'm. it's true. I'm certainly less humorous, not really humorous at all on the page. But when I hear that, it really poses a question for me. You know, the question of If I am actually being true to myself in my writing and if I'm doing that, you know, representing that unique unus whatever that is. And I do someday want to write with more humor on the page. I was really inspired by Samantha and, and to write in a different voice. But I also think that an aesthetic doesn't have to represent a writer's whole self. In other words, there's a self on the page and a self in real life and they reflect each other, but they don't have to exactly mirror each other. So when I mentioned earlier that Samantha and I were taught a similar writing aesthetic, I was talking about the aesthetic of minimalism, which was, you know, perfected by writers like Raymond Carver and Ann Beatty, and that. Style really dominated the instruction and writing programs in the '80s and 90s. Um, it was a spare style, a quiet and restrained style and it didn't allow for the the loudness or the humorousness that that Samantha wrote uh, the family chow with and and I think I'm in a very similar position If I take up a subject that demands a different style, I'd like to rise to that occasion. I never want to get too complacent or. Comfortable and aesthetic, um, writing gets boring or redundant as a result. And I wonder if that's what drew Samantha to this subject and style. You know that she needed to break out of her past.
0: Yeah, and we'll get to ask her about it, um, and and she has a good answer for that uh, coming up. And I, you know, I think that writers who are making a career out of their writing and, you know, writing many books over years and years that there really might just be a need to try on different styles for the sake of variation and also for deepening their understanding of good craft. And, you know, I I see this as partly to do with aging, you know, and and voice and confidence, you know, that all of those things kind of play a role in recognizing, you know, what you have and also maybe recognizing the departure and what you want to do.
1: Yeah, I think that's really true and really something that maybe needs to get um, researched or probed or thought about more. Now that I'm getting older, I'm intrigued by age as a creative tool and how different things are available to you at different ages. You know, and they've done, they have done some research on this that says innovation and new breakthroughs often happen with younger artists, but that older artists tend to bring in more synthesis and nuance and. That said I still wonder if an older artist older artist can't usher in a bold breakthrough of a different sort so I'm not entirely at peace with with innovation belonging solely to the young, but I'll I'll just trust that (laughs) for now for the sake of this conversation. I received the writing wisdom of my teachers and followed the prevailing schools of thought because like Samantha, I was somewhat insecure in my language and my writing. At the same time, I was trying to be a bold artist more so than I do now, I think, or in a different way. So I was doing more experimental things on the page. Now though, I think my writing does capture more nuance and more textured points of view and more counterpoints. And and if I want to make it loud and humorous, as Samantha did, then I would, I would trust myself, I think, to do that more so than I would have when I was younger. In the end, I just want to give our listeners permission to define their own craft and aesthetic. That's one thing that I was inspired by, Samantha. It's, it's so tough because there are all of these writing maxims and rules out there. But one definition of craft is that it is the vehicle for your expression. So be sure to make it your vehicle, not someone else's vehicle.
0: Yeah, hear, hear. I love that so much. And I work with so many writers who are trying to emulate their favorite writers or who are comparing themselves to their idols, you know, some of whom have been writing for years and years, like I'll hear people lament that they'll never write like Annie Lamont or like Mary Carr. And I want to say, yeah, no shit. You're not Annie <laughs> Lamont or you're not Mary Carr. Good advice, bro. <laughs> I know, but seriously, you know, I'll have a real straight shooter writer who wishes she could be more poetic, you know, or a funny writer who wishes she were more dramatic, like it's so easy to envy others and not value what you have. So that's what I'm resonating with is like to double down on what you're saying about your vehicle, right? Like, be proud of your vehicle, spend time on it, make it something that you're proud to drive around in. And that's the work of being a writer, you know, is like to let you settle into your you And I think it's so fascinating to consider consider consider, you know, that like, just like each of us have our own fingerprints, or literal voices, you know, like I just set up my voice to be my password for my bank, which really got me thinking about like, how crazy is that, that on this planet, we all have different cadences and intonations, you know, to articulate ourselves so uniquely. And that's kind of mind blowing. And it's really a reason to treasure our self expression, you know, and, trick out your own vehicle that's what i want to say (laughs) like
1: (laughs) there's the title for the craft book trick out your own vehicle
0: absolutely like don't dwell on what others have by comparison that's what i meant by the you're not annie lamont or mary Carr." like you are you
1: yeah well said on a side note i want to mention that the family chow was on barack obama's summer reading list this year as was black cake by charmaine wilkerson who we also had on earlier this year so i I just want to make the point that we share reading tastes with Barack Obama. And if he or any of his people are listening, I think he'd qualify to be a guest on the show. I'd have to vet that with you, of course, Brooke.
0: Yeah, you do not need to vet Obama with me. My gosh, I would love to have him on the show. Can you even imagine? And I think he would love it. Like no questions about politics or world affairs, just straight up like, what was it like to write your memoir, Barack
1: yeah we can do that
0: (laughs) (laughs) so hey the sky is the limit and honestly though we always reach for the sky when it comes to our own guests and this week is no different so on that note i could not be more pleased to have samantha coming back on air land samantha chang she'll be right back with us uh, as soon as we come back from break
1: Hey, everyone. I just want to remind you that a big writing event is coming up in November. It's called National Novel Writing Month. And uh, here are some things to think about uh, if you've done it or even if you haven't done it. One... Part of its premise is not to wait until someday to write your novel, because someday tends not to happen. So make your novel a priority and write it today, you know, during National Novel Writing Month. And the way that that happens is is that National Novel Writing Month, also known as NaNoWriMo, it's a 30-day challenge to write 50,000 words of your story. So let's do some math. That's about seventeen hundred words a day. That's very doable. Let me tell you, I've seen it happen thousands and thousands of times. And I always describe Nanowrimo as one part writing boot camp and one part rollicking party. And the boot camp part is, of course, you know, showing up every day and, and honing your discipline to to write and to keep writing and tracking your progress and being accountable. And then the party part is that we have this amazing community surrounding uh, Nanorimo. It takes place online, takes place in person. We've got a thousand volunteers around the world organizing writing gatherings in your community, probably. So yeah, write with others. Have fun writing. Also, write the novel of your dreams. You know, we say a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife. So sign up for that midwife. It's all free on nanorimo.org. I'll see you in November in NaNoLand. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce and talk to Lan Samantha Chang. Samantha's new novel, The Family Chow, was published by W. W. Norton uh, in February 2022, and she is the author of two previous novels, All Is Forgotten, Nothing Is Lost, and Inheritance, and a story collection, Hunger. And she has received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation, and the American Academy in Berlin. She's also the director of the world-renowned University of Iowa Writers Workshop, and she lives in Iowa City with her husband and daughter. Welcome, Samantha. It's
2: great to be here.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And I, I want to start off by asking you uh, what it felt like to be included on Barack Obama's summer reading list. I mean. I'm imagining that might be the equivalent of winning a National Book Award.
2: It was so great. I It was completely unexpected. I just didn't even think that anything like that would happen. And, and now as we go into the prize season, it's this sort of shining armor that I'm wearing around. And whenever I get insecure, I think about Barack Obama reading my book, just sitting there physically reading my book.
1: That's a wonderful image.
2: Yeah, it's awesome.
1: (laughs) It sounds like you haven't talked to him about the book, so I hope you someday do get that chance.
2: I would like to write him a thank you letter for this, but I have no idea how to reach him. So if anybody out there knows how I can get hold of him, please let me know.
1: I hope he's listening now. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you know. Okay. Um, well, I know that the family chow was spawned in part from Dostoevsky's The Brothers Kermatov, and I'm intrigued by this because I think that, you know, inspiration from another novel can be a tricky thing to navigate. And I say that because I've actually written two novels inspired by uh, a couple of my favorite novels, uh, the sheltering sky by Paul Bowles and then C- in crime and punishment by Dostoevsky as well. Uh. And I say, I say tricky because I, I wrote, um, my novel with characteristics and textures of those stories very much in mind, but I was also making it my story except sometimes I wondered if it was actually my story. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what it was like to write with the Brothers Karamazov in mind and how that shaped your approach.
2: Sure. So I had written a hundred pages of an unrelated project um, and set them aside back in 2005 and the project was about a tyrannical Chinese-American father named Big Peter and his long-suffering wife, Winnie. And they had three children, one of whom was named Ming, but the other two were completely unlike the uh, characters in my book. And there was no plot to what I had written, except that um, Winnie and Big Peter were going to get some kind of divorce and hold a divorce party. And that's really what it was at first. Then I got the job at Iowa, moved out to Iowa City, put aside all of my projects, except for one, which I was still able to work on about some poets, which published in 2010. And then there was a period when things at work were really busy and I had a small child and didn't get any writing done at all. Sometime in the middle of that, I was chatting with a student who was talking about the way that he liked to write in conversation with another work. And I suddenly realized that the pages that I had written would be an interesting project because of the tense. Um, They were written in the present tense and I'd never written in the present tense before, but I very much enjoyed it. it. It created a different tone for me and opened up the action for me. And I realized that in a way it was a craft element that was interesting when thought of in light of the Dostoevsky novel, which goes for like more than 500 pages, sort of following the characters, you know, with the camera between the characters ears for three days. And this made me think it would be fun to do something like that in the present tense. And I thought maybe I should uh, write a conversation with that book. Um, you know, three children, very different children, except for the character of Ming. And, you know, the similar father, but very different dynamic going on, the restaurant setting, this this kind of thing came to me pretty quickly at that point. And I was intimidated by having such a great conversation partner in this project. I mean, The the Brothers Karamazov is such a great book, and I had grown like deeply interested in it over the years you know so I decided the only way that I could have the room to work on it in my own head was to put the actual book the Dostoevsky book away and not read it I read it one more time and took notes and then I just stopped for six years Um, And during that time, I wrote my book without ever once looking at it. I didn't even look at my notes. In fact, I lost my notes. I found them at some point in the last year when we were moving. But it was actually very liberating not to be looking at that book. I knew it well enough to know the bones. And then I just sort of made up my own book.
0: That's so fascinating, and I I, w- I wanted to ask you about the passing of time. You know, I know it was fifteen years before the book was finished, but of course, a lot happened during that time. I mean, you said you got you became a parent, you got the job at Iowa Writers' Workshop, and so could you speak to that passage of time? I mean, you're talking about you know this great conversation partner, brothers Kermit Masov is this giant classic book, of course. Um, but what about the passing of time and, you know, like, yeah, the reading it, the putting it a- away, the the notes, you know, how did all of that affect the development?
2: Oh, interesting. It really helped me. It helped me to see it more clearly or to think of the project more clearly, uh, to have all that time without it. So when I came back to it, I was able to clearly see that I could only use about two pages worth of material from the hundred pages. And I was also able to see that I was in a different place than I had been when I wrote the initial hundred pages. I felt much more comfortable with the character who became Leo Chao after all those years, just getting my growth in. You know, By the time I started it up again. I was 50, I think. I was about 50. I was right around the turn of of 50 years old. And that's a very different place to be in than 40. I don't think people consider um, the mid-lives of writers because we're focused on debut writers, but the middle life of a writer is a fascinating time. And it can be a very dangerous time, I mean, for the creative work. You can get bogged down. Um, The reason that I ended up sort of gearing up again for the book was actually the death of my mother in 2014. I had a moment of clarity and realized that, although I loved my job, that if I didn't get a book written, I would not love my job. It would become the thing that kept me from writing another book and i didn't want that to happen so i really bore down on the writing process in those last years and um yeah i feel like i've i've emerged on the other side of it and i know that it was the major project of my middle age
1: well, you know, Samantha, it's interesting that you mentioned um, the middle age of a writer because we're the same age, according to my internet sources. And so we came up as writers in the same era. Oh,
2: that's interesting.
1: Yeah. And and so I really related, I read about how you, you know, when you were learning how to write and taking writing workshop classes in, in grad school, that, you know, you were taught this um, very dominant minimalist aesthetic. Um, which is very understated and restrained. And I remember that era really well because, you know, writers like Raymond Carver and Ann Beatty.
2: It was Raymond Carver. Raymond Carver is <laughs> everywhere. Yeah.
1: You, yeah. I, I remember talking to one, um, literary magazine editor who was like, please don't send us any stories where that take place in trailer parks. You know, we sure. Too many of those.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is interesting to me. Sorry, just one thing. You mentioned you studied with Elizabeth Talent. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that her early work was very much like that in the 80s. And then she became a very different kind of writer um, as she matured. Anyway.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm interested with you as well, is that um, I know that you shifted your aesthetic away from that minimalist style in the family chow to capture the kind of shouting and laughter and loudness of your experience growing up. So I was wondering if you could talk about this shift in your aesthetic and even how you see it being a part of your writing going forward.
2: Well, you know, the last point is really interesting to me because I, I find that this particular shift is very much related to my project. It's very much also related to the character of Leo who is outrageous in so many ways and only escalates his obnoxiousness if challenged and I really loved him, but I don't know how many characters I'm going to write like him. Um, also, the, the extremely plotted quality of the family chow and the sort of exuberance of the consumption issues in the family chow, a consumption of food, sex, et cetera. It definitely combined to create this tone in this book and not to mention the influence of Dostoevsky. I was also interested in an idea of breaking rules when I wrote this book. It felt very freeing. You know, the rule that dialogue, gosh, one of my professors at Stanford once told me that a line of dialogue should be used after 10 lines of narrative. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Very mathematical. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can break the rules. There's this wonderful sense of breaking the rules that I feel um, I captured in the family chow, but now I've broken them. So I'm looking to see what it'll be like next. I've broken them. I don't feel like I have to go back to writing the way I was before. I also don't feel like I have to go on writing the way that this book is for the rest of my life.
0: I want to pick up on that thread of loving Leo. You know, he's your patriarchal figure and he's based on your father. And so he has this outsized personality. He doesn't, behave respectively. His ambitions are outsized uh, to the point where he doesn't always consider others. And of course, your father was a different person, but I wonder if you could talk about, um, you know, this character who's based on your father, you know, did did that lead you to this new aesthetic somehow consciously or unconsciously?
2: I don't really think Leo is based on my father. Uh, My dad had an advanced degree and he didn't have three sons. He had four daughters Mm. and he didn't own a restaurant. And, you know, he was, he had very meticulous English and used to make fun of all the broadcasters on the news on TV. (laughs) But, but he did have a, well, he was, he was, he was an outspoken person. He was also a controlling person. Um, He was a loud person. He had a deep baritone voice and a loud deep laugh and he was funny and he was verbal and he got mad at the, mad a lot. Um, So in that way, I'd say Leo's like a cousin to my dad. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the lines that my, that Leo says are things that my dad actually said. My dad didn't swear the way Leo does, but that felt natural adding the swearing in. He didn't swear very much. Uh, So wait, I can't remember your question. I was hung (laughs) up on this idea that people think he's based on my dad.
0: Yeah, I guess I had read that and, um, You know, and clearly it sounds like there are, I like the idea of it being a cousin, you know, or that you like draw from it. But I I was wondering if that, if that characterization opened up something new in your aesthetic, you know, this, this character specifically writing about someone who is like that, but maybe not.
2: No, I think, I think, yes, Um, the book had to be a container big enough and loud enough and funny enough and raw and crude enough to contain the character of Leo.
1: I like that metaphor of the container. And, you know, I think one thing that intrigued me about the family Chow is is how it's in part about how we're seen and how we see ourselves. And in fact, the book's two sections are titled, They See Themselves, leading up to the death of, of Leo, and then The World Sees Them, following the trial of one of the three sons for the murder and then the chow family eventually comes to wonder if they were ever accepted in the community and so there's this interesting tension between community and individuality which is all the richer because they are immigrants in the midwest so i was wondering if you could talk about these layers of belonging and not belonging that you're you're writing about
2: i think that the part they see themselves it essentially tells the story of the interior drama of a family that's living its life in a town where they are not the dominant culture and they're essentially having a very dramatic family, uh, you know, narrative, but they are invisible to the people around them who see them as the people who own the Chinese restaurant, you know, those people, the restaurant people, um, The drama is ignored in addition by the other Chinese American members of the community because they want to keep eating at the restaurant without really thinking about what's going on there. And plus, everyone's a little embarrassed by Leo. He is just really badly behaved and he makes the rest of the Chinese American community look bad. In the second half of the novel, the private drama that is essentially invisible in the first half contained within this community contained within the restaurant in the community becomes extremely public, you know, on social media in the papers or in the media. And suddenly the way that they're seen is transformed and they're described through tropes that don't really have to do with their personal experience of of the drama. And I was interested in exploring that for obvious reasons.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'm curious too about the rhythm of work because I also read that uh, after finishing a novel, you enter into a period of writing unusable work. Oh, <laughs> uh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> which, yeah. Which reminds me of NaNoWriMo, which a lot of our listeners are, are getting geared up to do. So I'm curious if that lengthy exploration is a bad thing or a good thing or both
2: oh ah oh, okay i- I have never tried Nano for some reason. November is such a busy month for me that I just can't clear the decks and do it, but I know that if I did try it, I wouldn't end up with an entire novel by the end of it. What I have seen that people have written during these explorations or forays month long forays into novel writing they they tend to write works that are much longer than short stories. Um, that are in pieces and uh, that explore a setting or place or activity event in an interesting way. And I think that sounds like a very worthwhile thing to do because ultimately, I mean, a novel would require some one of those things. Um, I have no excuse for my, Difficulty in getting started on new projects. I certainly wouldn't wish it on anyone. I hope all of your listeners start NaNoWriMo and sail through it <laughs> without experiencing anything that I have. And I certainly don't feel that I have advice for people. I do think, though, that the only way to get a book finished is to write Regardless of whether what you write is going to be in the book, <laughs> like if I hadn't written that hundred pages back in two thousand five, I wouldn't have figured out that I could use the point of view and the tense and the basic setting um, of the Midwest in another project. Like I just wouldn't have. I would have thought about it and then just never believed it. It's like somehow. Writing it out made me see that it actually existed and, you know, that it could actually be done. And then I was able to do it when I had the time. So I wish everyone very good luck.
1: Thank you, Samantha. I just wanted to return to, you know, that we've been focusing on craft in in a recent series uh, on this podcast. And um, so I wanted to return to the way that writing instruction, you know, influences young writers, especially as I mentioned before, that we grew up in that Era when minimalism dominated so much. And yeah. we had Matthew Salis's on the show um, about a year ago when his book, Craft in the Real World, came out. Uh-huh. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, sure,
2: I mean, Matthew and I are friends. He lived in Cedar Rapids for a couple of years.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, you know, in the book, he he obviously critiqued the minimalist, you know, kind of craft uh, that was dominating things and, you know, kind of treated as if, you know, it was gospel, the gospel truth of writing. Yes. And so I, w- I wondered what your reaction to his book was, especially as because you're a writer, a teacher and a leader of a writing program.
2: I mean, I think Matthew's points are valid. I don't know. I mean, okay, I confess I haven't read the whole book, but I understand that it makes an argument that a process of criticism that evolves in a sort of like certain culture is going to be, you know, in the culture of the mid 20th century is inherently racist. Is that true? Is that what the book says?
1: Wait, what, repeat that one more
2: time. That the workshop process is inherently racist. Is that what the book says?
1: He, yeah, he places all craft instruction kind of within a cultural context. He actually does uh, do some um, background history of the Ira Writers Workshop. And um, I, I didn't know enough about the historical sources that he was drawing on from from that commentary.
2: And neither do I. I mean, I, I just don't know. Uh I mean, the thing that interests me is this idea, and I think he has a point, that if you are a person from a minority culture and you write a story and you put it up in a classroom in which most of the people in the class don't know anything about the culture you're writing about, their comments are going to shut you down in some way that could be crucial to your development. So I, having experienced that, being much older than Matthew, Um, having experienced the situation of being, you know, the only person of color in the room multiple times, many times, basically all the time when I was developing as a writer and having heard many things that were designed to shut me down, I have two thoughts. Uh, One is that for me as director, the solution was to create a community that was diverse enough so that People understood this and did not assume that their perspective, their own individual cultural perspective, was the only perspective, and understood that many craft issues could be related to cultural issues. I think that an obsession with craft is is bad for the work. I think that there's a certain amount of craft that definitely needs to get learned, but that ultimately, um, you know, just hewing to craft obsession isn't really good for art. So anyway, apart from that, my strategy has been to create diversity in our program, so that it is now, you know, 50% POC, and sometimes a little more, sometimes a little under, but basically, you can walk into a classroom now, and, you know, know that your comments, the comments you get are going to be very different than they were in the era that, that you and I were in as developing writers.
1: I love your, also your, your, your um, observation that hewing to, to a craft obsession isn't good for art. Cause I was thinking also in, in our, um, experiences writers like when i was joked that when i first started as a writer there were like 3 writing books on the shelf sure. and and now there're like 3000 of them or more
2: sure but like yeah does that really help to sit and read those books endlessly i wonder <laughs> am i insulting everyone
1: no not at all
0: <laughs> i want to just weigh in to say that i think it's also really important to Be able to have a debate about things like this. You know, I mean, there's, I'm in book publishing and so I'm like, oh my gosh, that's an onslaught sometimes. And I absolutely think that people can get too caught up in, oh, I have to read all of this stuff and then they're not exploring their own style. And, you know, so there has to be a balance. Maybe it's a both and.
2: I guess so. And I also feel that some of what's in the classroom is related to publishing. So and um, Lee was just in town and she and I did a conversation and she also did a Q&A with our students. She had them all read her um, review of Elizabeth McCracken's body of work in Harper's this month. It's called um, Against Aboutness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, now I got to read it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically I have seen a classroom, not mine, an undergraduate classroom, this is what I remember, where the first thing that everybody did when they got to class was, I mean, when they started looking at a piece of work was to to answer the question, what is this story about? And she is arguing against that strategy. And I was Mm. thinking about, well, I think she's correct. I think that the publishing industry, no offense to anyone, (laughs) is interested in trying to figure out what things are about so that they can market them and that that's actually putting the cart before the horse. Like I don't really think that students in class should be trying to figure out what their work is about when they're um, writing it because I think that what makes work art is somewhat ineffable.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Samantha. These are wonderful thoughts to uh, to carry forward. And uh, I'm going to read, what was it, Against About?
2: Yeah, I think Against Aboutness. And it's in the October Harpers.
1: Cool. Thank you so much.
0: Sure. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend.
1: This week's book trend is a thing more and more writers are leaning on as a tool in their writing process, and that's grammar checking software. It's part of nearly every writing software program, and it can be helpful or it can be downright annoying. For example, when I write in word, I usually turn it off because I find that it often misinterprets my sentences, and I hate looking at those squiggly colored lines underneath my prose when I know I'm right, but <laughs> I know more about this. That said, the tools have come a long way, just as artificial intelligence has come a long way and I definitely think tools like Pro Writing Age, which, which happens to sponsor Nanarimo and Autocrit, which has been a sponsor as well and Grammarly and others can help you know writer clean up their pros in the last stages or, or point out typos in an email even. But they're not substitutes for a good editor, are they Brooke?
0: Yeah, no, they're not. Uh, You know, certainly it's helpful. I think these tools can help you avoid egregious errors, but I also think there's a place, especially in the kinds of books that I work with. memoir and fiction primarily where perfect grammar gets in the way. And I remember listening to Helen McDonald speak once. She's the author of a few books, but notably the beautiful memoir H is for Hawk. And she was talking about how horrified some English professor who'd read her book was because she'd split her infinitives. (laughs) <laughs> that's just an example like I part- I don't actually like split infinitives but I also think like some writers are doing that consciously or you know they're writing colloquially or with intentional slang you know and so they might not be striving necessarily for perfect grammar good grammar yes uh, but I think AI can be a problem when it comes to things like voice
1: Yeah, the way that these checkers tend to work, these grammar checkers, um, they work by comparing your sentences to grammar rules, which are, you know, generally unbreakable and programmable, um, which is why they can be automated. Uh, but based on the context of complete sentences, online grammar checkers, they use a database of known grammatical errors to correct mistakes in any text you you enter. And what this means is that you're getting one very narrow view of your prose. I, I say that because your grammar checker isn't going to recognize your stylistic flourishes. And, you know, I think James Joyce and Virginia Woolf would probably get very extensive reports on what what's wrong with their prose. <laughs> uh, so I urge all writers to not obey the grammar checkers because they'll rule out sentence fragments and run on sentences that might be the key to your style, mood and the personality of your prose.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that's good. The, this idea of like using it at a later stage and and maybe just for the sake of the report is kind of interesting that you can look and say, OK, this is interesting, but I'm not going to uh, implement this change. I think on the other hand, it can actually help with things like repetition, you know, something truly problematic that you didn't realize you were doing. Uh, You know, and artificial intelligence is great at the end of the day, but uh, it certainly is not to the point where it can generate a story. And so I think tools like this are just that. They're good tools and they maybe save you a little bit of money because you'll hopefully send something cleaner than you would have otherwise off to your editor or your proofreader.
1: Yeah, I once talked with a very innovative teacher who had her students research whether Microsoft Words grammar checks were right or wrong. So she used the tool as a way to empower her students to not accept changes, but to dig in sometimes and assert their intentions for their writing. And I think we all need to do that.
0: I love that. Yes. The idea there being remain critical. And it kind of reminds me how I try not to overly trust my GPS (laughs) (laughs) when I'm in a place I know. Like, oh my gosh, recently I was in the back roads of my hometown and I know where I'm going, but I still put on GPS and I was following the GPS and then I got lost. Mm. And so that was ridiculous. I turned it off. uh, And I think that this is how it needs to be with writing. You know, We do know our terrain. We do know how to self-express and we can trust ourselves and so that's what we're encouraging you all to do this week you know and what we hope we do for you week in and week out actually trust yourselves Uh, we hope that we're giving you that permission we know our guests are so thanks everyone for your loyal listenership and we will be back next week